It's Friday, July 17th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Demand for coronavirus testing continues to go up, and the supplies continue to dwindle, as we hear stories of long wait times and even longer waits for results. But that doesn't seem to be a problem for sports teams that are testing players every day and getting results within 24 hours. Luis Radnovsky, sports reporter at the Wall Street Journal, joins us for how sports teams are handling testing. Next, over 32 million Americans are receiving unemployment benefits, and the Labor Department says the nation has 5.4 million job openings. That being said, Ivanka Trump and the White House rolled out the Find Something New campaign, a jobs initiative urging people to pursue jobs training and career paths that don't require a college degree. Talu Olorunipa, reporter at the Washington Post, joins us for how the program was slammed as tone deaf during the pandemic. Finally, COVID parties are not a thing. You might have seen stories about people throwing parties to intentionally infect others with coronavirus, but if you dig deeper, the stories then quickly fall apart. To be clear, people can and are getting sick by partying in close quarters, but they are not throwing COVID-specific parties. Gilad Edelman, senior writer at Wired, joins us for more. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. How are non-symptomatic professional athletes getting tests while others are waiting in line and can't get them? Do the well-connected go to the front of the line? Well, that, you'd have to ask them that question. I mean, they, uh, I, that I've read. No, I wouldn't say so, but perhaps that's uh, been the story of life. Joining us now is Louise Radnovsky, sports reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Louise. Thank you for having me. There's been a lot of conversation about testing right now during the coronavirus pandemic. There's surging cases all over the country, and with that, there's an extra demand for more tests. And we're seeing stories all over the place, people waiting hours in line to get their tests, and then beyond that, waiting for days and days to get their test results. Florida is one of those states where this is happening. There's been reports people waiting 10 days to get their test results back, and at that point, those tests are kind of useless <laughs> for uh, uh, purposes of staying away from people and quarantining and whatnot. But one of the big questions that pops up, and this is the second time that this has happened because it happened early in the pandemic, is the role of sports and how often their players are getting tested and how quickly they get test results. And looking specifically at Florida, again, we're waiting for the NBA season to start. The guys there are living in a bubble and they're getting tested way frequently and getting tests in less than 24 hours sometimes. So this poses a lot of questions. Louise, tell us a little bit more about this. We got a few answers by talking to the testing provider for the NBA, a company called BioReference, and to Major League Baseball as well. What the testing company for the NBA said was that they are prioritizing in a separate channel, if you will, healthcare workers and other essential workers. But in the other category, in terms of deciding between non-essential businesses that they're going to favor or move to the front of the line faster or less fast, the NBA is in there. So are other large employers. It's something of a free-for-all. They're not setting priorities over where the NBA fits in the grand scheme of things. The NBA has been working with them for a long time. They clearly got in there. They have other advantages, including being an hour away from the laboratory, which sort of cuts down on transportation times and the risk that things can go wrong there. But it's absolutely the case that they're testing several times a week. There is a national shortage of tests. There's a national shortage of 
processing capacity to get results back to people in a meaningful time frame. And you're absolutely right. You know, a result 10 days later is useless in that it tells somebody what their coronavirus infection status was 10 days earlier. It's only good at the moment it's taken anyway. That's actually why the NBA is doing such frequent testing, because they have a bubble, but it's not an extremely strict bubble. But you've certainly heard health ethics experts raise the question of whether it is appropriate for the NBA to be testing its players, in some cases more frequently than healthcare workers may be being tested. So tell us more about how Bioreference Laboratories goes about this, because as you mentioned, they are very close to the NBA section, but how do they go about it? As I understand it, they're providing all of the services for the NBA. They're sending somebody to collect the sample. They're transporting the sample back to a laboratory and they're processing it. Now, by doing this, they've avoided some of the problems that Major League Baseball had. As we understand it, Major League Baseball had one contractor to collect samples. Then it arranged shipping to a laboratory in Salt Lake City that had previously been doing performance-enhancing drug testing for them. That allowed MLB to say they weren't taking away tests from anybody else. They were creating new capacity for tests. But it also turned out to be harder to get that program up and running. And over the holiday, the July 4th holiday weekend, there were problems, particularly with shipping to Utah. That has prompted the uh, the league to turn to an East Coast laboratory, Rutgers, for East Coast teams, at least. That is also another one of these large laboratories that's handling a lot of tests for public and private clients. Again, emphasizing that there is kind of a free-for-all when it comes to establishing testing channels. There's no national system. There's no national line. There's nothing for anybody to jump uh, in terms of the line as much as they're kind of all competing against each other for access to these tests in that section of, of the economy where everybody wants a certain industry to be back, <laughs> depending yeah, on how, how exactly. strongly they feel about it. For some people, the priority is absolutely sports. For other people, the priority may be public school teachers getting tested so public schools can reopen. It's, it's a very tough one to call. And, and as the executive chairman of Bioreference said, he's not calling those priorities himself, but also nobody else's. I know the NBA still is on track for their July 30th start. But as you mentioned, they're just burning through tests every day they're getting tested. Mathematically speaking, the number of tests they're using in the grand scheme of things is pretty small. The optics, however, of running a successful testing program when other people are not able to secure test results fast are really tricky. The optics of running an unsuccessful testing program that doesn't work also means that they can't play under their own self-imposed rules. So it's a kind of no-win proposition for them. I think it's also really interesting to note the larger context in which all of this is playing out. In March and April, there was a certain demand for tests in order to diagnose sick people and establish whether they needed to be isolated from the rest of the population as it was sheltering in place. What you have going on now is a combination of two different things. You have a partially reopened America where people, as a result, want or are being told they need to get tests for everything from having a fertility treatment to entering the state of Maine without undergoing a quarantine on their arrival, or people are deciding that the most responsible thing for them to do if they want to see an older relative is to get a test in advance. So you have all of that demand that wasn't there in March and April. And on top of that, you do have cases surging. So you have the same kind of demand 
to diagnose people who are sick as much as you also have this new ongoing demand for people who want to screen effectively to make sure that they aren't sick and seek that kind of reassurance. And that in the fall, as we start looking at universities reopening, is only going to get greater. Luis Radnovsky, sports reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Obviously, prior to COVID, there was a wave of automation that was creating tremendous anxiety and disruption across so many different industries. Now, as a result of COVID, people need to, unfortunately, in some cases, learn a completely new skill. Joining us now is Tulu Olorunipa, White House reporter for The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Tulu. Happy to do it. I wanted to talk about this new work program coming out of the White House and led by Ivanka Trump, the president's daughter. The campaign is called Find Something New. Now, on the face of it, it's a good program. It's something that a lot of people might be interested in if you're not happy in your job or you just want a new career path, something like that. In that respect, this is a great campaign, something that a lot of people need in this country. But at this time right now, through the coronavirus pandemic, with record unemployment and people on unemployment benefits just trying to get by, businesses closing because of the pandemic, this program seems a little insensitive for the time right now. And I know a lot of people on social media were hitting on Ivanka and this whole campaign. But Tolu, tell us a little bit about this Find Something New program and then the response to it. Yeah, it did come across as tone deaf for a lot of people who saw the president's daughter, who essentially does have a job because she is the daughter of the president, telling other Americans to try to find a new job or find a new calling or sort of making it sound like it's very easy to just pick up and change career paths or essentially move from one industry to the other. That's essentially what the movement is about, this Find Something New campaign is telling Americans that you don't have to stay stuck in your current industry or job or what you've been trained for. There are other opportunities to do training for a new industry or training for a different kind of job that if you're not happy, you can easily move to another industry, maybe find something that's more lucrative or something that's more fulfilling. But it just kind of is a bit tone deaf at a time when there are millions of Americans without jobs, 18 million jobs that have been shed from the economy just in the last few months. And People are trying to find any kind of job at this point, and the idea that you can just pick up and change industries and easily find another job or find another calling is a bit tone deaf, and that's why there was so much backlash online after this was announced. According to some of the statistics, the nation currently has 5.4 million job openings. This is according to the Labor Department, but we have roughly 18 million Americans who are officially unemployed and 33 million Americans who are currently receiving unemployment benefits. This is all going to get a little worse even at the end of the month when the enhanced unemployment benefits that people are getting is set to expire as well. And that's around the same time that people are going to be asked to pay their rent, to pay their various bills on the 1st of August. And it's just a tough time for a lot of people. And some of the jobs that are being advertised as part of this new Find Something New campaign are things like contact tracing and nursing, jobs and industries that are essentially in demand in part because of the horrible situation that we are in with this pandemic. And as long as the pandemic continues to be out of control, the rest of the economy is not going to be able to come back. So it's kind of counterintuitive to be advertising. People can change careers to become contact tracers 
when the fact that we need so many contact tracers is just a sign of how bad the situation is with the pandemic. And as long as we're setting new records for new cases on a regular basis, the economy is not going to come back the way it would need so that people could get their old jobs back the way they want. Specifically with contact tracing, we've been doing a lot of stories about that because of the pandemic that we're going through, obviously. There's states that have woefully low amount of people to do that job. But then again, states don't have that much money to hire those people. That's why the number of contact tracers in each state is so low. States aren't getting the same type of revenue because people aren't working, aren't spending money. It's this kind of weird circle. But yeah, again, that is one of the jobs that they put out there as something that's expected to grow. And then there's also jobs that can be considered part of the green economy, things like a wind turbine technician, things that the president has railed against before. And that's another one of the jobs that they say that are open for people. It's very hard to pin down this administration on any policy, but the fact that Ivanka Trump a lot of times seems to be freelancing and doing her own thing, and a lot of times her messaging is very different from the president's messaging, it makes it hard for anyone to sort of take some of these initiatives seriously. No one knows that this is just going to be kind of an initiative that gets started, gets some fanfare, gets backlash, and then kind of fades away like other initiatives have in the past, or whether there will be actual presidential muscle behind this. When you say that things like wind turbine engineer are on this list, it makes me think that maybe President Trump has no idea that this is happening. He's not going to put any effort behind it, and it may just sort of fade away and not get a lot of traction. Tolu Olorunipa, White House reporter at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. They were all just linking back to original reporting from a local TV station in Tuscaloosa. And if you looked at what that reporting was based on, it was based entirely on comments that a city council member made to a reporter from that station. But in those comments, she didn't provide any evidence. Joining us now is Gilad Edelman, senior writer at Wired. Thanks for joining us, Gilad. Thanks for having me. I wanted to talk about a story that has been floating around throughout this coronavirus pandemic. They call them COVID parties. And you might have heard it. The one that I heard about initially was Alabama college students who were throwing parties with infected people to see who could get infected first. They would throw money in a pot, and the first person that got infected wins the pool of money. It's a story ripe for people in this age to just think, dumb college kids, how can people be so dumb? How can people think that coronavirus is a hoax? And while there is a danger of contracting coronavirus from attending large gatherings or parties or something, these types of COVID parties aren't always panning out. And you looked into it, and as you mentioned, once you started pulling the thread, you didn't really see a lot of evidence to support these stories. So, Gilad, tell us a little bit about it, please. So the COVID party story functions like a classic urban legend, where whenever you try to chase down the actual underlying fact, what you get is just a chain of rumors, and you never get to the actual evidence. So I started writing on this after that Alabama story came out that you mentioned. The story that college kids in Tuscaloosa, which is home of University of Alabama and other schools, were they weren't just partying. They were going to parties with someone with a known positive case of COVID, and then they were betting on who could get sick first, who could get a positive test first. And my editor, Dan, said to me, this doesn't sound true. <laughs> Look into it. 
And so when I looked into it, the first thing I noticed was all the stories about it in the different publications, they were all just linking back to original reporting from a local TV station in Tuscaloosa. And if you looked at what that reporting was based on, it was based entirely on comments that a city council member made to a reporter from that station. But in those comments, she didn't provide any evidence. And, you know, I reached out to her. I didn't hear back. But I did manage to get in touch with the state health agency, and they had no evidence of any intentional COVID parties. And so I wrote that up. And the point that I made was that these stories always follow really similar pattern. And it didn't start with Alabama. Back in March, April, May, there were stories from Washington State, Kentucky, and other places about these supposed COVID parties where people were trying to get sick and get it over with. And they always followed the same pattern, which is some public official says this is happening, but they don't say that they have firsthand knowledge of it. They heard it from someone. And usually that someone heard it from someone else. And so in all of these stories of COVID parties, there has yet to be any actual proof or firsthand evidence. And this leads us to the latest story, which was a guy who on his deathbed said he thought coronavirus was a hoax and he went to a coronavirus party and that's where he got it. I wrote about the Alabama stuff a couple weeks ago and kind of naively thought maybe I was done writing about this. You know, I wagged my finger at all the reporters who were passing this stuff along without trying to get to the bottom of it. But then just over this past weekend, this story blows up out of San Antonio. As you say, the story supposedly is that a 30-year-old guy who died of coronavirus confessed to his nurse on his deathbed that he thought it was a hoax. Then he went to a party to see if it was real and he got sick. And this kind of made my antenna go up because it really seems to fit the pattern where it's this kind of game of telephone, this chain of communication. And in this case, it can't be verified because this person tragically died. And so looking into this one, again, it became clear pretty quickly that there was no hard evidence that anybody could point to of this supposed COVID party happening. And also, the concept of the COVID party had to change to fit these new facts. Because if you remember, the story used to be people were going to get sick and get it over with. But this person supposedly didn't believe in the coronavirus. And so in reports about this, reporters had to kind of bend the concept and say, well, it's a party where people go to find out if the coronavirus is real. So what's the bottom line on this? Because I I like the way you write in the article. Does this mean that COVID parties are gulp, a hoax? Not necessarily. Give us the final line on this. So the bottom line is two things. First of all, people are definitely partying and that's bad. Right. Uh, I'm, I'm in Miami right now. And people are definitely having raging house parties, even if they're not intentionally getting the coronavirus, they're spreading it. And that's really bad. And I want to make clear to your listeners that that is happening. When it comes to COVID parties, these so-called things where people are actually getting together and trying to get sick, the bottom line is, is it possible that these are happening? Yes, it's possible. Is there any actual evidence that a COVID party has happened? No, there's no evidence. And so my plea to my fellow journalists is don't write about these things as if they're happening until you actually find the evidence. It's as simple as that. Gilad Edelman, senior writer at Wired. Thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, 
give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Vixen Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.